0: that really doing like a big effort in building a company is the most important thing. Being passionate about what we do, really working hard, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite important. And, and, and at the end of the day, at least the way that I've seen this, you need to delegate, you need to give everyone like, their chances to actually contribute to the business, but you also need to promote with example.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the fintech leaders podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host Miguel Armaza. Today we have a very special episode as we bring you the recording from the Vamos Latam Summit organized by Latitude in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I sat down live on stage in front of a packed audience of over a thousand people for a conversation with Sergio Fogel, co-founder of D-Local, and Sergio Furio, founder and CEO of Creditas, two of Latin America's largest fintech companies. We discussed providing new and innovative products and services to consumers versus providing it for corporate clients. What are the main differences? Wartime or a peacetime CEO? Is there such a thing as a peacetime CEO in Latin America? how to deal with challenges like international expansion, currency fluctuations, and even going public, and what makes FinTech in Latin America unique compared to the rest of the world. Special thanks to Brian and the entire Latitude team for the invitation. Latitude is providing infrastructure and community for startups in Latin America, and their first product is Latitude Go, a product that automates the company formation so your startup is venture ready. I think you'll enjoy this great episode let us let, just get right into it um, i guess i'll I'll call you guys by your last names uh, this is your tokayos uh, but um let let's let's talk a little bit about innovation um, of course to to be successful in the tech world you you have to be innovative right and and you have to always be challenging the status quo and i wanted to kind of refer back to one of my recent podcast conversations that i had and and this was with mike cagney who's the founder of some very big fintech companies um, figure and sofi and he referred that to be truly innovative to build innovative products that are truly revolutionary you can't really ask the customer what do they want? You have to instead build it, put it in front of them, and see how they react. And I, I wanted to get your, your reaction to this quote and also hear a little bit about the innovative process that happens within your companies. And, and maybe we can start with uh, Furio. Uh, yeah. Hi. Good morning, guys. Uh,
0: glad to be here. Congrats, Brian, for doing like a, one of like the most amazing events already in the first edition. So congrats kudos for you. A, um, yeah, so, so, so Mike's point is probably like an exaggeration. I would recommend everyone to ask the customer what they want. At least it's a starting point. Uh, the, the tricky thing when you ask the customer is that they're gonna come with, most of, most of the time are gonna come with very plain answers, very basic. If you ask them, if you want a loan, what does it look like? Obviously that loan is gonna be cheap, it's gonna be long-term, easy to pay, uh, and if I don't have money, then nobody's going to blame me and so on. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a great exercise. Yeah. But you know, the, the customer is never going to tell you, take my car as a collateral to lower the cost of my debt. The, 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 the guy is never going to tell me, you know, instead of giving me like a credit card that puts me into a revolving, protect me against that and move that balance into something else that needs to come from your realization of how things work in the backend so that you can provide that amazing user experience. Uh, most of the time people think that you know, UX is all about you know, what the customer wants, how do they want to position themselves. And obviously that's very important, but it's also as important as that to really understand how the mechanics of your product work, what you can do, what are your levers? I mean, obviously I can lower my costs, uh, but there's a limit for that. So I need to find like other levers on that. Yeah, um, 10 years ago when we started in Creatus, there was there was no such a thing as a car equity loan, even today. I mean, we have like a really like a hard time in explaining the customer, uh, let me take your car what the hell is that? Let me discuss with my partner and then come back. And you know, but, but that's, a, that's a mental process that all customers need to do. And uh, I agree with the part of, of Mike's point on, on innovation. That uh, the true innovation really comes from the teams that are working on this. Um, many teams. I was like talking last week with 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 one of our product managers, pointing to you know we need to do deeper discoveries, deeper discoveries, and and obviously yes it's true, but you know this year I think it calls to do more with less, and some of those discoveries we just need to realize that we have like so many people talking to customers directly naturally. So why don't you instead of like doing a discovery and spending like a hundred thousand dollars to do like a bunch of tests. Why don't you actually listen to the phone calls of our customers, what they're telling us, how can we improve the product based on that? So innovation comes really from that type of things, very basic, but you need to be very attentive. to There's a famous, I don't know if it's true or if it's a, an urban legend uh,
2: about uh, uh, Henry Ford mm-hmm. that they told him if, if you ask customers what would you like in a the car, they would say, I want a faster horse. Uh, so... Depends on the level of innovation. If it's something that people actually know, then I completely agree with Fulio, with, um, with Sergio. Uh, if it's something that is really revolutionary, like it was, for instance, the iPhone, then it's very hard, you need to create the product and then, and, and then uh, uh, put it in front of the customers. Having said that, I think there are two completely different worlds when you have a startup. One thing is if you have a startup that sells consumers, and a completely different piece is selling to businesses. If you're a founder and you have a B2B uh, uh, product, chances are that your customer knows what they need perfectly well. They probably know about your industry more than you do, but they have issues executing and building the product. So in many cases, you go to your customer, you said, I'm going to build this. And they tell you, no, 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 don't build this. Build this other thing. If you build it right, I will buy it for, from you. And in my experience, when I first started my first company, I didn't even, uh, there there wasn't any VC money available. Sometimes customers would even give you the money. They would say, build this, here's the money, build it for me, and I will buy it from you. So that's an ideal situation. You cannot have that in business to consumer. It's a completely different
1: business. And, And how do you manage the fact that every business, every customer in the B2B company, is gonna have slightly different requests, right? And how do you make sure you're not building a lot of one-offs?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a death trap. If you're going to adapt your customer to every single, to your product to every single customer, you're dead. Because you'll end up having millions of versions it's impossible to maintain. Uh, it's going to drive you crazy. But normally there are a few customers that really know the stuff, that they, they can show you the way ahead and with those, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's two customers, maybe it's three, maybe it's five. Uh, and it's very useful sometimes to have a, a customer a board that, that can help you define the product. Uh, and But then your product team has to decide, okay, this I'm going to do, this not, but it's, the, their input is
1: going to be super valuable. And, and while we're on this topic, uh, Furio, you, I've heard you speak in the past that you, you mentioned that it wasn't just about convincing customers to take this product, but especially partners in the ecosystem, investors, because people thought that this wasn't going to work in Brazil. Um, how, how did you go around that convincing?
0: Uh, yes, just being stubborn, I guess. <laughs> um, so I remember in the, in the early days, like everyone saying, dude, but what the hell are you talking about? Brazilian banks are the most efficient in the world. Look at the cost to income ratio, look at the ROE metrics, look at, um, and, and obviously they were like this myopia, if you charge a lot, it looks like your economics are amazing, but it's just that you're just charging a lot. And, and, and yeah, when you started bringing in like things like, uh, you know, I'm gonna do a home equity, I'm gonna do a car equity, and obviously the pushback is, you know, Brazilians don't like to lose their house. I say, ah, yeah, yeah, no, Americans love to lose their houses. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty obvious. So, so, so I guess that, you know, we, we constantly face criticism. Criticism yeah, that starts by, with ourselves, by the way. <laughs> we are the first ones. But probably we are like too optimistic to just like stop. We just want to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, okay, it's true that 2020 and 2021 were the years of storytellers. But that's, uh, that's just, it's momentary. Yeah, at the end of the day, the company speaks about itself you need to perform the numbers will tell the real story and not your mouth um so i think that you know i'm glad that we're in 2022 to a certain extent because then we can you know put heads down focus on working focus on delivering we need to deliver so that everyone understands that you know, this is an actual product this is an actual business it's not because i'm saying it it's because you look at the metrics look at the economies look how happy the customer is and uh, that would speak for itself but obviously you know every time that you start you're always going to be facing a lot of criticism. Otherwise, your business is crap because then if everyone is loving it and everyone would be doing it and they are not doing The reason why, I don't know, David Vélez has been successful was because no one had the guts to actually say, I'm going to launch a credit card. I mean, you were looking back in 2013, everyone saying, what the hell is that? You're doing a credit card? What What, what, what is that? I mean, why? We have like so many. Um, so contrarians really are the ones that that end up like uh, winning the game.
1: Speaking of 2020 and 2021 and the big shift that we have experienced in the tech world, um, one of the concepts I wanted to touch on is the concept of the wartime CEO versus the peacetime CEO that was popularized by Ben Horowitz uh, from Andreessen Horowitz. And, And it's the fact that a peacetime CEO can afford to build a lot of things that you know you, you, you can only focus on those when your company is actually growing, doing well, when you're not facing ex- existential threats. Uh, whereas the wartime CEO, you know, cannot afford to make some of those decisions and, and has to have a completely different approach. In the startup mode, you're always in wartime in many senses, but especially 2022 is an especially challenging year. And, and my question to, to both of you, but maybe we can start with Furio, how has your leadership style adjusted over the last, call it, year as the outlook has shifted? Yeah, well, the first thing is
0: Ben Horowitz was not born in Sao Paulo, because then he would realize that there's no such a thing as being like a peacetime CEO in Latin America. What the hell is that? I mean, we're entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo. Brian was talking about this. Uh, it's very hard. I mean, it's uh, when it's not because you don't have capital, it's because the market is crazy or it's not, this competition. If not, it's the government, it's always taxation. I mean, th- there's always a crisis in Latin America and that's probably the beauty of it, right? So I remember the CEO of Magalu being asked, I mean, it's so difficult to do business in Latin America. It's so difficult to do business in Brazil, the ICMS, the taxation, logistics. And then the guy looked at that and said, well, actually, if it was not because of that, Amazon would dominate the entire country. So the difficulty is our friend. And, uh, and, and we need to feel proud about it. It's a less me, 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 less complaining. You know, it's so difficult. It's much better to be in Silicon Valley. You yeah, go to Silicon Valley and then start competing with a million guys that are smarter than you are. Not that we don't have like a lot of smart people here, but we have like lack of talent. We have lack of capital. We have lack of a bunch of things. And that ends up being our stamina. The, the, the reason why we wake up every morning and we want to kill it. So I, I don't like peace. I, I think that peace makes you weak. It creates a culture that doesn't survive, doesn't thrive. And every time that you wake up in the morning and you have like a lot of difficulties, you're building yourself a bit stronger. And that probably, I don't come from a millennial a culture. Yeah, that's probably true. I'm too old for that. And I was, uh, I was born with a, you know, with a family culture, which is a lot about, you know, dude, I mean, stop like me, me, me and just work hard. You, you were not born tall and smart, but, uh, but you are born as a warrior and you just need to do it. And I think that 2022 is uh, in part, is a monument to those type of entrepreneurs. And, uh, and it's a way in which we're gonna be killing the mimimis, killing the storytellers, and then focusing on delivering, on executing, and on building companies that can be successful forever. Now, just uh, sorry for the, 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 the quick, advertising campaign to, you know, to, 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 to be like a, I think it's, it's, it's a horror to be an entrepreneur in Latin America for all these reasons. Yeah, now it's true that in 19, in 20, in 21, you had to be softer. You had to be like a, a CEO that was like embracing a new reality with a lot of people wanting to be more engaged with everything, wanting to have like a more work-life balance and so on, so you had to adjust yourself. You, you had to be like more inspirational to certain points Inspirational in the sense that people want to hear the vision and then you're constantly talking about that. And, uh, and we had to adjust ourselves and uh, adjust our language, adjust our, the way that we were managing the business. And, uh, and obviously more recently over the, the last six to nine months, it's a, it's a bit back to you know, the, the, the worst war that we have faced probably over the last 10 years, which is absence of capital, high interest rates, high inflation, a war for talent that is still on. Uh, so we cannot forget that the talent is what actually moves the companies. It's not the founder. It's the team that is around you. And, and I think that now we are trying to twist a bit the messages and just remind everyone in our rooms that really doing like a big effort in building a company is the most important thing. Being passionate about what we do, really working hard, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite important. And, and, and at the end of the day, at least... The way that I've seen this, you need to delegate, you need to give everyone their chances to actually contribute to the business, but you also need to promote with example. Um, If you are working hard in getting into the details, if uh, if you take an analyst or an intern, and then show everyone that you still can solve problems with an analyst together with you, and you don't need like a huge structure to solve problems, I think that inspires people. And if they inspire them in the right way, do
1: more with less her, I think you have a very interesting point of view because you've co-founded several businesses across many cycles, and now you work with more than one CEO, with more than one co-founder. How you observed your co-founders across your different companies, you know, React throughout the last year? First of all, I completely
2: agree with, the, with Sergio. I don't, I don't know what a peacetime CEO is. I don't like it, I, uh, all the companies uh, I'm involved with, people are frugal, where the, their asses out working. Um, you just mentioned the word the millennial. You know that millennials don't really like to work, they don't have commitment, they just want to go to the beach.
0: We are gonna be very popular in this world. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> it's bullshit, come on, look at these guys. What, what's the age here? They're all millennials. Some of them are, what's, what comes after millennial? Gen X? Gen Z? Gen, Gen Z. Z. Yeah,
1: well, you have a millennial right here.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, my experience, I'll tell you a story. We have a, a case. We needed a, to send someone to China for two years. And our CEO was uh, was thinking, where can I find the right person? Because we, we wanted someone over there. I'm talking about the local. We wanted someone to bring a culture and, and work together with the, the Chinese team. So then, his light, uh, his light bulb went on. He said, oh, this this guy that worked for us in the past, he was great, but he's studying. I'll call him and see what he's doing. He called him. He said, uh, listen, we're looking for someone uh, that wants to go to, uh, to, to live in China for two years. Uh, and we, I thought of you. He said, well, you know, I'm, I'm traveling. I'm right now on vacation in Spain. But sounds interesting, I don't know. I, I, I need some time to think about it. He said, okay, how many days do you want? He said, what you mean days? I'll answer you in two hours. <laughs> Half an hour later, he calls, he says, you know what, Seba, I'm going to China. He said, okay, you're in Spain, you need to go back, pack everything. He said, what are you talking about? I'm flying to this, this evening. Uh, and and that's, that's the level of commitment that we are seeing in the young people. The thing is, if you don't give them meaning, then yes, they, they, they don't care. When, when they're building th- something, when they're, they're part of the team, especially when you're in tough times and you say, okay, guys, we all need to work. The party's over. Everybody needs to roll up their sleeves, work together, be part of a team, uh, go out and kill. It's, it's the ideal time for, for wartime people, but that's the only thing I've ever, uh, I've ever known.
1: Speaking of geographic expansion, let's talk a little bit about that because both D-Local, Creditas, uh, and your other companies. They're, they're global companies at this point. What have you learned about a, a geographic expansion, international expansion, going to a new culture, there's a new language? Is there a playbook that you found that works particularly well? Can I say,
2: <laughs> for other words, it's very, very hard, first of all. You have to do it. It's very hard culturally because... If you only have uh, local people in, in local people in geography, then they lose con- lose contact with the with the mothership. If you send people over, it's uh, uh, then you, you don't have the local touch and and at least in in, in the business that we're both at, uh, regulation plays a very big part. So you have to be in contact with the regulator. You have be- to be in contact with the local banks, with the authorities. Uh, so you need local people for that. The um, formula that we found is, is to have something hybrid, send people that are that have the culture embedded over. So for instance, today we are all the time offering people, would you like, uh, today we have a Uruguayan managing uh, the office in Singapore. We have two Uruguayans in, in China. We have people from Argentina in Africa. We have people from Colombia in Africa. Uh, we really encourage people to move to other places with the pandemic itself because uh, uh, during the pandemic, our developers were uh, all over the place. Uh, you call someone and say, uh, can you come over for, uh, the, for coffee? Oh, no, I can't. I'm living in Costa Rica now. Um, so that makes it, makes it easier. Um, but the hybrid formula of having locals together with a few people that, that already have the culture works. And we do a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, off sites or I don't know, gathering uh, retreats in different parts of the, of the world that people travel to uh, so that's a bit uh, the other thing is that in, in our case most people are remote even the ceo is working
1: remotely how, how about uh, on the credit side because you you started in brazil and you were local in brazil for several years but then you expanded to mexico did you also take this approach of Hiring local and maybe sending some culture carriers from, uh, from Brazil?
0: Yeah, no, the, the first learning is uh, international expansion is, is extraordinarily difficult. There are very few cases of companies that have been able to move from, I don't know, from Sao Paulo to, to, to Mexico or from Mexico to, to Brazil. And be successful. It's it's very difficult cultural wise. Uh, it's it's about like focusing your resources. I mean, just like building a company. If you're especially if you're B two C, if you're B two C and you need to build your own brand, you need to have like millions of customers. I mean, it's it's building a new company. It's a new problem that you're facing. So why on earth are you going there? Um, so I was like very uh, contrarian on on doing international expansion, and uh, we didn't do it for eight years. Then in in twenty twenty uh, we decided to do it. Um, and it was with a mentality of almost a, if it were like a, a financial investment, uh, the, the reason was we got an offer to buy a company there. We looked at the company, we liked the company but we didn't like the, the comp- we, we like the market but we didn't like the company. Uh, so we said why don't we invest in a team to actually build and startup So that's the mentality. but the management team is not involved in the Mexican operation. It's a completely separated entity uh, with their own management They're like some support here and there, but it's very difficult. I would say, unless you have a business, and it probably it's, it's a bit in your case happens this, unless you have a business that only has like 10 customers in every geography, I, I just wouldn't do it. I mean, I would just like focus on your natural market. Obviously, if you if you are coming out from a small uh, country, it's easier to do international expansion than you're, if you are coming from Brazil. But if you're in Brazil, just like dominate the market first and then go to somewhere else. I, 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 just, wouldn't,
1: I, I just wouldn't do it.
2: Yeah, it you're not calling Uruguay a small country, are you?
1: <laughs> not at all. This is a year that has seen a lot of fluctuations in, in the FX market. And, you know, you, you, you deal with dozens of currencies. How, how have you managed, how have you navigated that FX, that call it FX risk?
2: We, we have, a, we, if we're talking about the local uh, we have a whole team that does that. That's that's the nature of our business. So that's a very core area. Uh, we try not to have exposure to to FX, uh, even though in some cases we could have made a lot of money. But that's not our business. So we try to hedge the FX risk uh, as much as possible. We end up having maybe I don't know one or two days of exposure, but no, not more than that. Uh, th- there are some geographies that's very hard to do, like. Uh, I don't know, India or or Nigeria, but we try to uh, to hedge that.
1: So for uh, Furio, you, you, Creta's is, is becoming acquisitive. You you recently bought a bank, and Bank Brazil. Um, tell us about this decision and maybe tell us how you want to evolve the, the liability structure of the company going forward. Yeah,
0: yeah. So so first I, I think that MA is is not suitable for in general for the startup world, it's very difficult. You're building a culture, you're building a team. So it's very hard to generate value with M&A. Having said that, I think that we are like a a bit of an exception there. Uh, Back in 2013, we started with an acquisition when we were like seven people in the team, we bought another company that was another seven people in the team. Um, So I'm contradicting myself. But then we didn't do anything until 2019 where we bought Credit 2, which was payroll loans. They were like a team of 40, 50 people today. That business in just three years represents 20% of the of the revenues of Creta. So it, it has been like a tremendous journey. It has multiplied a hundred times versus when we uh, bought the company. So, you know, super successful case. We did like a, a number of acquisitions last year. We got into insurance by buying Minuto Seguros, which was the largest digital insurance broker in Brazil. We had no clue about insurance, but we saw the potential um, of uh, of the cross-selling between the insurance product and the lending product. We did the investment in, in Volts, which now has become the largest uh, electric motorcycle manufacturer. And you say, okay, a fintech company buying like an electric motorcycle manufacturer, that's pretty uh, out of the box, and definitely it is. Uh, but we own 40% of the business, super proud of that. They now do 3% of the new motorcycles in Brazil, which is like an amazing feat. And obviously, you generate a bunch of loans through that to um, so a company with close to $200 million in revenues by themselves, standalone. Uh, um, now it comes to the license. So, we have been sympathizing with the idea of having our own deposits base for a while, uh, not in order to completely migrate our funding structure into deposits, but just as a complement, just as a way of diversifying. Every time that you go to Faria Lima and want to fundraise in capital markets, the investors know us very well because we do a securitization every 20 days. Um, so they, they say, okay, so this is again coming into the office. And when you do that, everyone starts like, realizing that you are dependent on them. So they end up like, having like, a bit more of, of power against you. If you suddenly have an alternative, then you can negotiate better with those guys. So that was very important for us. Um, so yes, we bought a bank. We bought a bank in the, in the middle of the largest VC crisis that we have faced. And it was like a perfect match uh, that, that we had designed to continue growing 2X every year. So today we are growing 3X versus last year. For the next year, we are planning to do 2X and we want to become profitable. And the banking license really helped us in like speeding up the roadmap for that. Now, uh, we don't want to become a day-to-day bank. That, that's not what we do. We love what Nubank is doing and we partner with Um, So why would I just like launch a credit card and a, and a checking account? I don't need that. But I want to have a deposit space. So it's a way of, uh, and I think that this is like a, the type of MA that I would encourage everyone to look at in late stage in the current scenario. It's an MA that helps you in speeding up your roadmap to profitability because, you know, this is what
1: 2022 is all about. So speaking of, capital markets, uh, we, we have to talk about locals IPO. You successfully uh, went public about a, a year and a half ago uh, in, in the NASDAQ, truly an example for the, the region, for the industry. T- tell us about this process, but specifically, what would you advise late-stage entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who are looking to that eventual IPO? How can they better position themselves, particularly now that the window is definitely closed you know, and they have some time to think about it. Uh, maybe you, it would be very helpful, I think, for everyone here if you could share your experience of the IPO. Sure. Um,
2: first of all, the, the process of going public is a very, very long, very hard process. Uh, it's not for everyone. It takes a lot, lot of effort, lots of distraction, And it's something that uh, you cannot uh, you cannot hire a bunch of uh, MBAs and tell them, prepare the IPO. Uh, it's going to take lots of resources from the people that you need the most to run the business. So it's going to be the CEO, the CFO, the COO, the legal team, uh, the tax team. Everybody is going to be super, super involved. So that's, um, it's not for everyone. And it's also being a public comp- company company is also very expensive. You need to expensive in terms of actual out of money, out of pocket money, but also in, expensive in terms of, uh, things that you cannot no longer do. You don't have the same flexibility that you had before. Uh, for instance, you need to comply with SOX rules. You need to have contingency plans for everything. You need to have succession planning. There's, there's quite a lot of work, additional work that, that is very destructive. Now, I, um, about the process itself, there, there are a few things that everybody at a very early stage should take into account. For instance, in our case, when we started the company, having uh, audited financial record, financial statements, it was always something that, well, let's do it later. So our, our accountant at the time, if if I, I could have her uh, running audits or opening a new bank account, I told her, no, worry about the bank account. Um, so... Uh, you need to change that mentality. You need to have uh, audited statements with a, with a good uh, auditor. In our case, we have to change auditor. And when you change auditor, you need to go public with, uh, uh, with three years of uh, audited financial statements by a big four company. We have three years. We have more than three years, but not with a big four company. So we have to restate because they, they will not buy the, what, what the previous guy did. But I think the most important uh, lesson in our case was to have the right investor. Uh, in our case, we have uh, a, we have an investor, as investor, General Atlantic, that, that they were our, our main investor. Um, I see many companies that have like, I don't know, 10 different investors. I think it's okay, but you need to have at least one that has enough skin in the game that your company is... is, is it's important enough that they will be in the ship with you. And in General Atlantic, we found that partner. And when they came to IPO, came, they roll up their sleeves and they were they were part of the team. We would not have been able to uh, to go public without them. Uh, so that's that's my main uh, my main message. Find the right investors from early on, and have an investor that can help you throughout the process. That did it many times, and that already has all the contacts and all the. They know how of, of
1: how to do it. How about working with the pre-IPO investors? As a Latin American company that's building for the world, what, how was the dialogue with the pre-truly pre-IPO investors? Normally, I mean, first of all, I wasn't uh, really involved
2: in that in that process, so I, I cannot help you much. Uh, the pre-IPO investors normally are there. It's it's people that invest. I don't know, maybe six months before the IPO, and uh, many of them are there for the quick money. So they want to invest six months before and uh, sell at the IPO, and, or or a few months uh, later. They will probably not help you very much. You actually want people that, because at the end of the day, if you're going to IPO, you need people that really know the company from inside out, that they know. Uh, how uh, taxes dealt with, that they know, they know in our case, that's a very important part, that they know uh, how you account, uh, that, uh, that they help you with time. If you're uh, with IFRS, you need to move to GAAP. So uh, th- 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 those are things that you need to be involved. Normally someone that enters six months before the IPO will not help you.
1: Uh, Furio, how, how about uh, creators thinking about a possible IPO? You know what are your, your thoughts on that and i'm sure you can't share too much but you know well it, i
0: guess that in the current moment is not something that you can decide it's something that the market will decide when when that will happen the markets are currently closed i think it's the by, by far the largest crisis that has happened over the last 20 years uh, in terms of the time without having ipos and it doesn't look like it's going to improve anytime soon yeah, um, so now people start like talking second half of next year uh, with interest rates now in the U.S. now pointing towards like five percent. Um, there it, it's uh, you know low appetite from investors in just like investing. It's not even about the valuation or the multiples. It's, it's about the appetite of getting into a new company. What what from our perspective looks like very straightforward is that you know heads down focus on delivering a high growth company two x and focus on delivering a company that is profitable. I think that's what investors are gonna be looking for when the markets start re-engaging with tech IPOs. And, uh, and that's what where everyone needs to be focusing on. We've always said that we sympathize the, the idea with the idea of, of bringing uh, creators public. It's, um, it's a company that relies a lot in capital markets, that transparency looks like the name of the game in order to lower the funding cost, the operational cost, it helps in branding, it helps in accessing larger pockets of, of money. And uh, some of our investors are already like, uh, you know, public investors. We have Fidelity, we have Wellington, we have Advent, we have SoftBank. So those are the type of guys that you want to have as partners so that whenever the time comes to actually do an IPO, they can help you in managing that transition. I, um, I think that, you know, a public investor, a, a public companies IPOs don't have like an easy life uh, they are really dependent on, on every quarter. You, you, you need to deliver every quarter, right? So it's, uh, if you need to do like a lot of experimentation, you better do it today. And I think that we have made like a lot of mistakes over the last 10 years. We have experimented a lot, including buying electric motorcycles and uh, reconditioning cars and doing whatever crazy thing that comes to our mind. Um, but when you come into public markets, you need to go straight forward with a message. This is my company, this is what I'm gonna be doing. And especially in these days, investors need to look at the company as, you know, it's profitable, it's going to continue growing, it's going to generate a higher way. If you just focus on that, then the multiple is like a secondary discussion. It's, uh, especially because private multiples are converging towards public uh, um, public uh, multiples when you advance in the face of, of, of the company. Um,
1: so, you know, like a tough road ahead. Speaking of investors, Oftentimes, when I talk to uh, someone who's considering investing in Latin America and Brazil, maybe one of our LPs, I explain to them that Brazil is one of the best fintech markets, not just in Latin America, but globally. And one of the reasons is the regulator, the central bank, actually being very friendly towards fintech companies. And there's a long list of reasons uh, and then list of ways they've done this. Furio, you've actually been working with the regulator for the last decade. Um, Tell us about your experience, uh, partnering with the regulator working, and also you've seen it evolve uh, from back when they were in 2013 to today.
0: No, the first time that I got a call from the central bank, I freaked out. I was back in 2015, and uh, the assistant of Octavio Damaso, which is the head of regulation in the central bank, reporting directly to Roberto Campos, the the assistant called to our customer service. And then a guy came to me like running, the central bank is at the phone. Uh, They they want to talk to you. And I say, oh, shit. Uh, So now now it's over. Um, Because if you remember back in 2010, we had experiences in Brazil like Fair Play that was shut down by uh, the police, right? Um, I was operating in FinTech, right? um, So I was freaking out. Um, They invited me to go to Brazil, to Brasilia. And uh, I, I put myself a, a shoot for the first time in five years at that point. And uh, went to Brazil and there were like 20 people in the room waiting for me. And uh, they were with the notebooks, they were like, they wanted to learn. And uh, I found that fascinating, the ability of the regulator in Brazil to actually support entrepreneurs. They had like a very clear agenda, which is I want to lower rates, I want to foster innovation, I want to foster competition. I said, well, you can be my pitch deck. Can you just repeat it again? Because I'm going to put it in my pitch deck and I will send you my investors so that you can tell them that you're going to be helping us. And the experience was amazing. In 2017, we started collaborating with the Central Bank in uh, bringing the regulation of, uh, for, for great lending, uh, for fintech great lending in Brazil. And it ended up being an amazing uh, opportunity for many uh, startups to actually be able to be independent. So, so that's, that, that's great. And definitely that's a, that's, that's a tailwind. But I wouldn't say that the reason why fintech in Brazil is because of the regulator. They are helping. They are an enabler. But it's the conditions. I mean, we have like a market that is completely, uh, it's fucked up. I mean, it's like we have margins of 20% on the portfolios, 25% on the portfolios. Very inefficient, short-term products, very high price. We have 20,000 branches and probably we just need like 2,000 today. I mean, obviously all that infrastructure was created 10, 15, 20 years ago when there was no cell phones. So you had to have those branches, but you don't need them anymore. So this is the opportunity that we are attacking today. And, and it's amazing. It's a huge country, a country that is not afraid of taking loans. That's a reality. And uh, imagine if you can take that debt that we are delivering to this. In Brazil today, you have two trillion reais of consumer debt, but it has a maturity of nine months. So imagine that you can take that debt and extend the maturity to five years, similar to the US, and that you can lower the rates from average of 40% to average of 20%. Essentially, if you do the math, you can inject in the country something like seven trillion reais in debt. Imagine what the population can do with that, better education, better services, more entrepreneurs building companies. I mean, that really encourages other entrepreneurs to build infrastructure to make that happen. And uh, yeah, I think that Brazilians ended up like realizing that that is like an amazing opportunity with a very clear purpose. And uh, and that's why really fintech is an amazing play. And the regulator is
1: helping us, obviously. Uh, for one of the key signature moves of the central bank has been launching PIX, which is real-time payments, Blocal local as a payments company. Um, maybe share a little bit about the experience working with the regulator in the context of PICS, integrating and, and eventually offering uh, PICS for Brazil?
2: Yeah, uh, I think that the, the PICS is something that uh, central bankers all over the world should uh, uh, should look at. And it's a- absolutely amazing what the Brazil Central Bank did. I don't think there is any precedent of any, any anything like that. Uh, in the us the Fed is trying to do the Fed now, and uh, uh, well maybe in China you have something uh, that works as well, but it's it's private and uh, it's it's uh, super cheap, but it's really amazing what uh what Basen did with did with, uh, with pigs uh, We like it, we integrate into it and we are helping uh, international companies accept PIX in Brazil uh, which is super valuable uh, for them. Um, and we only wish that uh, more and more countries had the same
1: type of, uh, of experiences. One of the great things about this summit is that we can actually take questions from the audience that have been submitted on the, on the app, and we have a couple minutes, uh, I guess, for the most vo- voted question coming from Gabriel Barnasconi, and it's about what differentiates the fintech revolution in Latin America versus other regions like Europe, Asia, the U.S. And maybe we can start with Paul.
2: If, if there's something that's very special about Latin America, it's friction. We have friction everywhere. We have friction for payments, for credit, to, to in general to move money, to move goods, to move things across borders, it's a pain in the neck. And that's very painful. But friction is where entrepreneurs thrive. What, what, what at the end of the day, what we are all doing is eliminating friction. So that's, uh, that's why the opportunity is so great because there is so, much, so many barriers to throw
1: down. Furio, you, yeah. you're originally from Spain, from Europe. So I'm guessing you are connected to the European fintech ecosystem, although you're building in Brazil.
0: Yeah, I would never start up a fintech company in Spain. Uh, my mortgage today, is I still pay 0.39%, which I just don't understand how can it happen. And I have had that loan for 15 years now, 17 years now. I'm very happy with that mortgage, but I don't know as an entrepreneur how to improve that. Uh, so if I cannot improve something, I would just go to whatever the opportunity is. And definitely uh, that, that's something that, that happens in Brazil. Friction, obviously, is very relevant. Uh, but if you think about, uh, um, the, you, you generate money in, in banking, Essentially, through payments um, and through lending, um, and maybe you know you, you you take some take rates on investments. Those are like the three verticals. Specifically in Latin America, most of the fintechs are focused on doing something that allows them to deliver loans. And the reason why this happens is because you need affordability. You need to provide a way of someone to buy something in installments. It can be like in why because we are not that rich. We don't have that much amount of money available to buy an iPhone. An iPhone today costs in Brazil $2,000, which is almost double what costs in the U.S. And the uh, average salary of the Brazilian population is one-third of the salary of a U.S. person. So that means that they, you need to spend, from a money availability perspective, six times more. If They're not like companies that are trying to facilitate that type of transaction. For example, in our case, using your salary and then discounting the iPhone in 24 installments with a much cheaper rate because we get the rebate from the iPhone producer. If, if we need to have entrepreneurs that actually focus on solving affordability problems for the population, you think Nubank, yes, it's a payments company, but that monetizes through credit. Take Mercado Libre, ended big time in, in payments, but then moved quickly into credit. And today is the, uh, is the way that they are actually expanding. If you take... Uh, Honda, 50% of the net income of Honda motorcycles comes from Honda Bank because you are financing the motorcycles. Take the Magazine Luisa, take the, you name it, take Pack Seguro, take Stone. Everyone needs to be focused in Latin America, especially in Brazil, in lending as a way of monetizing. And that's where entrepreneurship really makes a difference. It's finding innovative ways of providing affordability to the Brazilian population. Those opportunities. Are not as big in Europe and in the US. And that's the big differential. Yeah.
1: Last question before we go to both of you. When you think of the, the next few years, what gets you the most excited about entrepreneurship in Latin America?
2: I, I think a, a, lot, a lot is going to come from Latin America. What I personally like the most is uh, the, the entrepreneurs that are to to go to the to the world to innovate, Uh, uh, there is so much innovation going over here that could be applied to to the old world.
0: Uh, That's what excites me the the most. Yeah, I think that we have planted the seed uh, on something that is very unique in the world and that is happening in Latin America today. Latin America was not in the map of any investor five, six years ago. It was all about the US, Silicon Valley, then China. Uh, China has disappeared. The U.S. Like, is a bit mature. Forget about Russia. India is too expensive and too weird. Brazil is the time to be here. It's the time to be in Latin America. It's, it's amazing. And we need to recognize the effort that was done by the entrepreneurs 10, 15 years ago. You know, the Buscapés, the Peches, you know, all those guys really planted seeds. And then in 20, we had like this cohort of companies in 2010, 2011, 2012, 13 that have become really references in the world, not in Latin America, references in the world. Now we have that infrastructure, we have companies, we have uh, the caminos, the latitudes that help entrepreneurs to actually be much more efficient in the way that they are deploying capital and that we are doing business. I'm very sure that the new phase in Latin America is not going to be corporate driven. The youngsters that are coming out from universities, they don't want to go and work to Itaú, Bradesco, Santander and the likes anymore. They really want to start up their own businesses. And that is extremely exciting because when you find the talent and you deploy the capital, then that's the secret for success of an economy
1: and 10 years from now it's going to be amazing Sergio Sergio, thank you for inspiring a generation before you go since we have so many people here i thought we'd take a a selfie with a thousand people uh before we get off stage <laughs> thank you very much guys <clears throat>